the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, April 27th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be examining calls for legislation to be introduced for mortgage switching. How much might borrowers save from this proposal? And later in the show, we'll have a roundup of the major economic and company news of the week, including the revelation that the government could have more fiscal headroom when it comes to framing the next budget. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, which is also available from our website, irishtimes.com. But we'll start first with mortgage switching. This week, Irish MEP Brian Hayes called on the next government to introduce legislation to make mortgage switching easier for borrowers. He believes this would make it easier for borrowers to secure a lower interest rate at a time when many of them are paying what he considers to be rip-off variable rates of 4% or more. And Brian Hayes now joins me on the line. Brian, uh, thank you for joining us from Brussels. Um, We don't have a code of conduct for mortgage switching in Ireland at present. And the banks tell me that uh, we don't actually need one, arguing that there are few barriers to switching as it is. So why do you think we need legislation introduced here in this area? Well, I suppose the question is, do we go down the road of a code of conduct or do we go down the road of legislation? Uh, I've yet to be convinced, I have to say, that simply a code of conduct within the banks uh, administered from the Central Bank of Ireland, who have expressed an interest in this, is the ultimate solution here. We may well have to require a kind of stick approach rather than a carrot approach in trying to make sure um, that we get people switching who want to switch. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I think, you know, we're not good at shopping around when it comes to financial services, especially so when in, in the mortgage area. And given the fact that we've gone through this upheaval in the banking system itself, we're coming out the other side of it with banks in, in, a, in, in a better position. I do think we need to look at how we can make it easier for people to switch so that it, I think, puts a kind of internal pressure on the bank in a funny way you know, competition is going to be crucial for the Irish banking system into the future. If you can't entice people into the market, new players into the market, we have to get consumers to speak up. And we certainly have got to remove barriers for them in trying to switch uh, as easy as they can. And that's why I think at this point in time, I'd be in favour of the legislative approach as against the code of conduct approach, which is probably more voluntary, less prescriptive, and may not be the actual right response right now in trying to get Uh, consumers aware of their rights here and to make it easier for banks to actually do the deal for them uh, if they choose to switch. Sure. Now, you've cited Italy as a good example of where legislation exists uh, to facilitate mortgage switching. And about a third Mm. of people switched their mortgages uh, last year, presumably going to a lower rate and saving money. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. If you take last year, you know, 32% of new mortgages in Italy were, were generated through people switching. It's it's not true to say this never happened in Ireland. Actually, if you look at the, the stats before the, the crash, there was a quite a significant number of people who were switching at that time. But there has been, and in fairness to the banks, what we've seen in the last year is an, in, an incremental increase in the number of people switching. And then was the case the previous year. And I suspect you'll see that for the next number of years. The question is, how do we get the message across to people that A, can they switch? And B, if there are barriers and penalties there for people, try to remove those. What's interesting about the Italian case that I've looked into is not just is the high turnover of people who are switching, but is that it's made particularly easy for them. I mean, the two banks in question uh, have to share information under the under the legislation that the Italians um, passed. Interestingly, from them, whether this will work in Ireland is another matter. 
there, there are no costs for borrowers in these procedures. So in other words, there are no switching fees, no valuation fees, no insurance fees, no tax uh, fees. Now, how realistic is that in our common law jurisdiction where we independently look for advice from legal entities before we do something? And I think, as you said yourself in your own piece this morning, um, you know, the, the amount of paperwork involved here often puts people off. But it is an issue. I mean, if people find prohibitive costs, notwithstanding the fact that some of the banks are now offering to pay for those costs, um, the question is, how incentive laden will it be? And I think the other issue is that the switching procedure needs to have a definite period of time. Um, in the Italian case, what I find out, there's a 30 day maximum period uh, when the borrower makes the re- from by the time the borrower makes the request to the new provider, there's 30 days when the whole transaction has to be done. That seems to me to kind of put that pressure on the banks to get on with it and to prioritise this. Now, there's a general point I'd make here. Of course, the banks don't want people to switch. Why would they? It's not in their interest for people, you know, for them to 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 effectively lose a customer that way. But I do think that we have got to take a very close look at what are the barriers, what are the penalties and what are the difficulties that people have in trying to trying to switch. And of course, some of the legislation that the Italians put through dealt with that specifically. Whether it can happen by code of conduct is an open question. And I have to say I'm yet to be convinced. Um, And I certainly think that the central bank should be much more in your face in trying to solve this problem. Mm. And during the most recent election campaign, we said we, we would do that if back in government. I happen to think probably wasn't enough. I think that's why the legislative route is more prescriptive at this stage. There are some unique features about the Irish market, of course. I mean, for example, half, uh, roughly half of the mortgages are currently on trackers and that's a really low cost uh, form of mortgage. The average rate, Mm -hmm. I think, is something like uh, 1%. So there's no way that somebody's going to switch off those trackers. They'd be mad to do that. And then you have another, according to a central bank analysis last year, there's probably about another third um, who are people who are either in default or have been within the past 12 months or uh, have been in negative equity or perhaps they only have a small rump of a loan remaining so it's not worth switching or they have a higher than 90% loan to value ratio those kind of factors come into play and they don't uh, those factors don't make it possible for those people to switch for one reason and another there's there's no doubt that there are legacy issues uh, on the balance sheets of the Irish banks which prevent people from switching I mean why would you want to switch if you have a tracker and we know the number of tracker mortgages in Ireland vis-a-vis the total market is way out of kilter than what is the case in other European Union countries. Um, And I think, as you rightly say, why switch if you're near the end or alternatively if you're in a situation of negative equity? That's not to say, however, that where people are in variable situations, which is still a huge segment of the market, Mm. that we cannot tailor some solution here. I mean, in the circumstances, I have repeatedly said and others that we, you know, the average variable mortgage holder in Ireland is paying, what, 2% on average more than is the case in other EU countries. It seems to me that that's the group of people who are really being screwed, if you like, by the system. Um, and, a lot, and a lot of that is legacy as to why they are being screwed by the system. It seems to me if we could tailor some legislative response to that group of people to get them to switch, it would put pressure on the banking system to bring forward new products, to take a more constructive approach when it comes to variable mortgages and trying to reduce the burden on that group of people. Because as I think we all accept now, it is people on variable mortgage who are shouldering a lot of the burden uh, for people on trackers. If you have a tracker at the moment, you're doing very well. You're in a good position um, vis-a-vis people who are in variables on a variable mortgage. And I think that's why we really have got to work hard and bring forward some kind of suite of measures for that group of people 
uh, who are who are really in a very difficult situation. Now, of course, each different country has a different set of circumstances. What you get in other, um, if you like, mainland continental countries is a much greater prevalence of fixed rate um, mortgages for maybe a, a 10 year or a five year period that people buy into. Um, and that one, it's one of the issues I've been raising consistently in this area. I think there is a need for more products in this area where people will have some certainty in terms of a fixed rate mortgage over a, a longer period of time. And that is, you well, know, to be not fair to Bank of Ireland, in, I think that's, in, a, that's a road that Richie Boucher is trying to lead Bank of Ireland customers down, isn't it? Yeah, th- that is right. Um, the AIB as well have actually produced new mortgage products in this area as well as Bank of Ireland. And they're, they're, they're right in doing that. But it, it, for some reason, in, in the last 10 years, even before the crash, people did not take on fixed rate um, loans for a longer period of time. Now, that's the norm in Europe. So each different mortgage market, country by country, if you like, is different. Um, but that's not to say that we cannot do something significant for people. Now, that brings on to another point, sure, because you've, you've said we have a, a single market for trade. Um, we have a, a eurozone, area, a financial area in the eurozone, which is becoming more integrated under the auspices of the European Central Bank. And you've questioned why people aren't able to buy mortgages on a cross-border basis. How realistic is that? It's uh, one, I suppose it's the gold standard of um, retail financial services. I mean, at one level, um, we, we don't shop around, as I said at the start of the interview. But secondly, uh, companies do not offer those services member state by member state. Um, it's all very well to take out, you know, for a period of time, a mortgage pro- or an insurance product or a life product uh, over a, you know, a smaller amount of money over a longer period of time. That's one thing. But taking out a mortgage is quite another. We have built up this kind of relationship in Ireland between our, our, our bank, where we actually physically bank, and the mortgage provider. And that's probably quite unhealthy, if you like. Um, I, I would personally hope that over the course of this parliament, we, we will see some project, uh, some, some progress in this area. We now have a green paper by Commissioner Jonathan Hill in the area of financial services uh, to see if it is possible that we will get more interest. But I think the crucial thing for Ireland in the next year to 24 months or so is to try to encourage players back onto the Irish pitch, to try to get people from other member states, larger corporates, to come into Ireland and start offering um, mortgage products. That's the best way uh, that we're going to try to to, 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 to to reduce the cost for consumers, ultimately, in the area of financial services. In Northern Ireland, I think, you know, you have at least twice the number of entities and agencies that offer loans to people than you have in the Republic of Ireland. Now, some of that's down to the, to the crash, uh, but that's why the circumstances need to be right to encourage more competition in this area. Yeah, just on the uh, mortgage switching thing, going back to the central bank analysis from last year, they found that there were about 109,000 mortgage holders who could potentially benefit from switching their mortgage. And of that, about a quarter of those could save potentially €10,000 or more uh, over the lifetime of the loan. I mean, it's a huge sum of money when you put it like that. I mean, you won't make that kind of a saving in any other aspect of your life. And it makes you wonder why more people perhaps aren't exploring this right now. Well, I think think there's two things. One, people aren't aware of it. Uh, and if they are, they're frightened off by the paperwork argument, possibly the legal, possibly the cost, and possibly the penalties that go with that. And I think it's, I think that that's the issue that would have to be crucial to any piece of legislation. I mean, given the fact that you know, ten thousand euro can be saved in the lifetime of, of a mortgage loan, that's a lot of money, and you could do an awful lot for your children and for your family over that period of time. And I think it does go back to this fundamental problem we have in Ireland that we do not really embrace 
the whole principle of shopping around and looking for, for best value. And I think even where you do, it's not made easy for people. And that's why I think the stick approach is against the, the more voluntary code of conduct approach, even if it is a first um, step, uh, is ultimately the way to go. Okay. Now, tracker mortgages are good for consumers, but they're not really good for banks because in most cases they're loss making and they really weigh on the uh, balance sheets of the banks. You have spoken in the past about possibly some sort of ECB style solution. Uh, being framed that might um, take these tracker mortgages off the balance sheets uh, of the banks. It hasn't happened. It doesn't like, look like it will happen. Uh, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on whether uh, there, there might be any progress on that uh, in the years ahead. I think we've been very slow in Ireland um, to push that. I think we've been slow to bring it to the ECB's attention. Uh, the door is half open in that area because, as you know, um, under the, the latest scheme, uh, there is a potential now for looking at property transactions, property loans to be part of the the potential area where where banks can offload some some of their some of their um, assets to the ECB. And I think the question now is, um, is there now a window of opportunity to do that? Now I've repeatedly raised this raised this question because I think long term, if you move the trackers to the balance sheets of the ECB, ultimately or through some third vehicle around that. It then, you know, really frees up the Irish bank's balance sheets and improves their fiscal position. But I think the other issue is this. I mean, trackers are, are no longer really, as the property market comes back, and particularly significantly in some areas, the trackers aren't as unprofitable as they used to be. People speak about the unprofitability of trackers as if they're talking about 2008, 2009. I mean, the market has come back significantly since that period of time. And I think... As the market comes back, so too will the profitability of track, trackers long term. And of course, the question is, as people get up, get to the end of the tracker mortgage and the bank does, they then get out of that liability from the bank's perspective. But there's no doubt about it. The longer that this issue is put to one side, the more difficult it's going to be for the banks to really get back to a normal trading level when it comes to, 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 lending, to lending rates. But equally, the longer it'll be for the Minister for Finance and the government, whoever is in power, to ultimately sell off the banks because it is holding the banks back. And I think it's very clear. I still think there's some opportunity for the ECB and the Irish government to look at this question uh, in terms of mezzanine funding. Um, if anything, we, we know that the situation is moving. Uh, what Mario Draghi's solution was two years ago has been changed now and it's evolving. And we need to be ahead of the curve if and when it changes again. Now, finally, Brian, you were Director of Elections for Fine Gael in the recent uh, general election, and I can't let you go without asking for your thoughts on the talks taking place currently between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil on the formation of a minority government. Um, is this going to be a sustainable arrangement? How long can it last? That's a very good question, and I really don't know. I think it's pretty important that in, in any ultimate agreement between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, um, where effectively Fianna Fáil is facilitating Fine Gael going back into government, that there would have to be very clear red line issues on the question of the length of duration of that government, the minimum number of budgets that Fianna Fáil would support, and they would have to be part and parcel of those budgets, not just in macroeconomic terms, in terms of tax and expenditure, but also in the, the measures within social welfare and tax and other areas that they would have to support. Uh, so, I mean, I think at, at a minimum, it, it would not make sense to enter into an arrangement that doesn't have at least three years um, durability. Yeah. And I think it's it's important also to say that uh, it, were that to happen, I think it will give some stability to the country. It's now, what, 60 days since uh, since the general election. We have a very inconclusive result. It's time now we formed a government. 
Um, I see I the Spaniards are going back to the polls after four months of stalemate. Yeah, and and I think in fairness to, to our party and the Taoiseach especially, he has tried in working with independents, Fianna Fáil, and offering the Grand Coalition in, 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 in trying as the biggest party in the Dáil, albeit um, a minority party, to, 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 to find a way through this. Um, and I suppose I very much hope that in the course of the next few days some ultimate deal will be agreed and that the Dáil will elect a new Taoiseach and government. We need it yeah. because uh, it's this, this sense of paralysis cannot continue much longer. And what do you think about abolishing water charges? It looks as if Fianna Fáil is going to get his way in that matter. Well, I'd, I'm not in favour of abolishing water charges. If there is to be a short period of time when a commission will look at this issue and report back to the Dáil, I think it, if, if, if we're to agree that, from, from Fianna Fáil's perspective, equally we need agreement from them, uh, that they will introduce some new charging system, which may be a better charging system or a fairer charging system. I would point out that under Article 9 of the Water Framework Directive here in Brussels, uh, the polluter pays principle is pretty central in all of this. And, you know, for, for Irish politicians to pretend to the public that we can get away, in you know, indefinitely without having no system of charging for water is fundamentally dishonest. Mm. So if this go- is going to be a short period of a pause within a new charging system, that has to be part and parcel of the agreement that Fianna Fáil will make. And I presume that that's what my colleagues and Fianna Fáil are trying to come to an agreement on right now. Yeah, well, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think water charges are going to be a feature of the next parliament, whether it lasts two, three years or, or even a bit longer. There are even suggestions that people who paid their water charges might get refunds. Well, I think it would be a big mistake for us now uh, to unwind, ultimately, uh, water charges. I think we've learned, you know, we need to learn the lesson from the 1970s and 80s when you keep reducing the tax base and diminishing the tax base and the charging base it doesn't lead to a good public policy outcome. Uh, water is a scarce resource. I believe people should uh, pay for it, as is the case in other countries, with fair, with a fair free allocation and a fair charging system and particular support for very poor people. Uh, but the idea that this issue can be kicked down the road for another doll uh, or for another government, uh, I don't think is very real. And I, I know in my discussions with, with Fine Gael people uh, that what they're trying to agree is a system whereby a new system, charging system would come in to being, uh, while at the same time making sure that system is fair. OK. And the chances of a second election, what do you think? Well, you can never say never. Um, we have to be prepared. Um, I think a second election right now would be a disaster for the country. What's needed is a stable government uh, with some level of authority in the doll. Uh, to enact legislation and to work with all parties in trying to do that. We are facing into a very uncertain future because of the upcoming Brexit debate and vote in the UK. It's interesting, even when the Department of Finance said today that their projections for growth this year of nearly 5%, which have gone up, um, that could be completely um, altered as a consequence of a, a Brexit. And as a small open economy that bobs up and down on the international uh, oceans, uh, we're trading, we're exporting, we're vulnerable. And I think we all need to be prepared for the worst possible outcome in a Brexit debate. And I'm, I'm, as I said in a speech that I gave in Dublin uh, 10 days ago, we have to be prepared for the worst here to make sure that whatever comes out of this, um, that we can get some certainty with our EU colleagues in terms of some preferential deal. deal. So while things look good at the moment in terms of growth, uh, in terms of GDP growth this year, um, 
a lot will depend on the egg the Brexit outcome, and I think that's why a government needs to be put in place as soon as possible. Right. And if there were a second election this year, Brian, would you would you volunteer to be director of elections again, or are you happy to leave I'll that in it. the past? I'll do whatever my my party want me to do, Kieran. I'm I'm a servant. I'm a servant of my party, and that's a matter from 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 my party. I mean, it's been a difficult election for us. Clearly, we lost many many good colleagues. The Labour Party had a terrible, a very unfair result, actually, in terms of what they have done for this country in the last five years. Um, but I still believe the Irish people um, want a good outcome from this, and they do not want another general election. And I think Lobitide, any political party, our groups of party, having put a government into place and then to take it out of place within six or nine months, I think, would be a disgrace. And I think that, that party, our group of parties, would then have to answer to the Irish public. Okay, Brian Hayes, thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now and we'll return with an update of the major economic and corporate stories for this week. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Now, welcome back. I'm joined for this portion of the show by Arthur Beasley, the Irish Times Economics Editor, our recently appointed markets correspondent, Joe Brennan, and Cliff Taylor, business editor of the Irish Times. Arthur, we'll start with you. You've been writing in the past few days about the government potentially having more headroom in terms of this uh, so-called fiscal space when it comes to budget time this year, potentially of the order of €400 million. Explain this to us. Well, uh, this is a a recapitulation of of that dreaded expression, fiscal space, which uh, featured uh, so prominently at the very outset of the election campaign. But, of course, the fiscal space is essentially uh, a sum of money which may be available to the government come October when it comes to the casting of the budget for 2017. And when the budget was released... Last October, the expectation then was that the new government, whoever was going to form it after the election, that that government would have a sum of money in the region of 500 million at its disposal for budget 2017. It now appears that a sum... This is wriggle room. Uh, yeah, wriggle room, essentially, yes. And, uh, for capital that, or current spending. And that, and that sum was pretty much... A, a, accepted by each of the parties in their manifestos. The figure appeared in one form or another in each of the manifestos. It now appears that they're going to have uh, rather more money available and the latest suggestion is contrary to uh, suggestions that the the sum might in fact be 700 million, the suggestion on the floor of Leinster House in in the Dáil this morning from Michael Noonan was that the sum could be 900 million. 900 million, okay. So where does this extra money come from? Well, uh, at one level, the government is a beneficiary of very strong economic growth last year, and that is expected to continue this year. That, in turn, feeds into uh, a big uplift in tax revenue. So the starting point in January was a lot better than would have been foreseen in October. There have also uh, been the beneficiary of 
two uh, developments when it comes to the operation of Europe's very complex fiscal rules. At one level, the medium-term target is uh, has been eased a little. The government was obliged to balance the books in structural terms. There's a whole lot of you know, arcane explanations behind that, but essentially uh, under an obligation to balance in structural terms, they would not have reached the target until 2019. They now have to achieve only a... a de- the, the target has been lessened to the extent that the government has to achieve now a deficit of 0.5 of 1%, half of 1% of GDP uh, for the deficit. And that essentially means they're going to get over the line in terms of the official target earlier in 2018. And that means that more money is going to become available. At the same time, uh, leeway is opening up uh, via another means in as much as a decision was taken in respect of uh, a transaction in AIB shares last year through which the state realised $1.6 billion. That, in fact, turned out under the letter... The, uh, the yes, exactly. Yes, and, and under the letter of uh, European law on statistics, that turned out to be, in fact, government expenditure because Allied Irish Banks is wholly owned by the state. The uh, even After that expenditure, the state ended up realising £1.6 but that had the impact of increasing the deficit at the end of last year. But that expenditure of the money turns out to be rolled into the base, the permanent base of expenditure for 2016, and that means that the pool of money available for expenditure this year is uh, greater than was assumed at budget time last year. And at the, in the heel of the hunt, when you get to the end of all of that, there's going to be a little bit more money at the next government's disposal in the autumn. Now, that assumes everything goes well. Right, OK. Cliff Taylor, after that exhaustive um, <laughs> and comprehensive explanation by, yeah. by Arthur, €900 million Euro extra. Sounds yeah. great. Um, but on the one hand, we have uh, overruns in the health service. Yeah. Uh, we know that they're coming through since the start of the year. And on the other hand, we have, we're told, uh, potentially up to €13 billion Euros, uh, being sought by independents for various projects for their support uh, of a, a Fine Gael minority government. So how, how do we square the circle on this? What, what's the real outcome going to be? Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, 900 million won't go very far in terms of the kind of demands we've heard during the uh, during the uh, negotiations on a new government. I suppose to put it in perspective, as Arthur said, it's you know it is a significant amount of money. It will allow the new government some wriggle room, uh, but I suppose remember that last year the budget for this year presented last October had 1.5 billion. Uh, added 1.5 billion to the economy in taxes and spending, and, and the same amount was added in uh, extra spending into last year's sums, which meant the real increase was, was was actually a good bit greater. So we're looking at a budget next October that's going to give away less than happened last October, as you said, against the uh, backdrop of a huge number of demands, against the backdrop of overspending in the health service, uh, and all kinds of demands for new spending and, and lower taxes. It strikes me that there, you know, there might be a little bit. Of, of regular room in the budget, but not but not a huge amount, uh, and that the start for for the next government is not going to be you know they're not going to be able to be particularly generous. I don't think the, to the public and are going to have to make some really uh, okay. difficult choices in terms of where to spend the money, whether to spend it on investment or whether to go the most pop- more populist route, I suppose, of cutting taxes. Yeah, and just to be clear, and um, does that yourself or Arthur know the answer to this question? The, the 900 million, does that factor in um, into account 
the fact that we won't have water charges this year, uh, which seems to be the case as part of the negotiations between Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, Arthur? Uh, not something of a mystery at this point. I, I, I don't think anyone and really knows. And even for people. Well, there is. I, I, I don't think anyone really knows the, exactly what is in play. Uh, there is some kind of an agreement. There's all kind of chatter as to what exactly it will embrace. But it seems to me that the technical workout of what it's going to mean in terms of its implications for the public finances uh, has not necessarily been at the to the fore of the very difficult political negotiation ongoing for many weeks. Yeah, I mean yeah. the net sum involved probably isn't isn't huge in right. terms of just in terms of next year. You know where it does play in is trying to put in place a, a plan to actually fix the problems of the water infrastructure. But as Arthur said, that kind of long term thinking doesn't seem to have featured too much in what we've seen. Right. Okay. Let's switch to corporate news now. And Joe Brennan, I should start by welcoming you. This is your debut uh, on the Irish Times <laughs> business, business podcast following your uh, transfer from Bloomberg. So you're very welcome. And um, you've been covering the Arda Group story uh, this week, which involves the company unveiling a 3.4 billion dollar debt funded deal to become the world's uh, third largest beverage can manufacturer. Explain all those. Yeah, this is kind of their <coughs> traditionally um, uh, Arda would have been in glass bottle uh, making and then in recent years it got into the whole area of of, of tin cans for um, for processed um, foods like um, uh, vegetables and, 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 and peaches and the like. It's in the, this deal is actually kind of diversifying it even further into the whole area of uh, cans, tin cans for um, beverages. For mm. beverages. Um, so it gives it another kind of string to its, to its bow. So what exactly are they proposing to buy? And they're proposing to buy a a, a number of assets being sold off by um, US a group called uh, Ball um, Corp and Wrexham, which is a UK group, and they're merging this year. And they're being forced by competition authorities to do to sell off uh, a bulk of assets ahead of that merger. Um, that amounts to about three point four billion dollars of, of assets, um, and they're based uh, mainly in Europe, the US, and, and some in Brazil as well. So, how are they going to structure this deal? And are, are they looking possibly at an IPO? Yeah, I mean, I think the market had expected that, you know, the, the, the whole acquisition spree for Arda was going to quieten off in, 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 around now, given that, you know, it had looked in recent mm. times to go down the IPO route or at least raise equity from, from, from private investors. Um, it abandoned the IPO of its metals division late last year. So I think it took the market a bit by surprise that they actually went down the acquisition front and returning to the whole area of funding that with debt. Um, given that Arda itself um, had reached at levels where, where analysts were expecting to, 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 to raise equity to try and deleverage a bit. Um, so I think people mm. were surprised but then go back out into the debt market as well. They've also found a kind of a sweet spot in the market when you think about two, three months ago. The, the high yield or the junk bond market had largely been shut off for issuers um, given volatility in the markets and, and, That's and investors. Sorry? That's opened up again? That's opened again in the last six weeks or so and, and Arda would be one of the biggest issuers now we've seen come out in this kind of okay. new wave of, of issuance of, of okay. Now, the main driving force behind our dad is Irish financier, stroke entrepreneur, Paul Coulson. I mean, he took the business. It used to be Irish Glass based in Ringsend, etc. He's made it into this world player, as you say, it's diversified, uh, etc. What, what's this going to mean for him? How's it going to value his stake? He's about 35%. Yeah, 35-36% um, he holds. And there's actually legacy shareholders that wouldn't wouldn't have taken part in the Take Private uh, back in 2003, and they own about 18%. So they'll make good on this investment as well if the valuations stack up along the lines of similar valuations of, of companies like this. We're talking like a, 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 a 
at best, maybe a valuation on the equity of about 5.5 billion, which would value his stake in the region of about 1.9 billion. If you look at the, the smaller shareholders um, who would have had an 18% stake back in 2003, um, when the company has only had a market capitalization of about 21 billion, they could actually end up with a stake somewhere, somewhere mm. in the region about 950 million. If if it gets the, the yeah. top, and of course that's a paper range. valuation. That's a paper valuation. It all depends on what equity markets are going to be like if and when they return to the market. Sure. But in the meantime, it looks that they'll go down the private investment route, um, given that the IPO markets are largely closed off. Okay. Now, Cliff Taylor, you've been writing about uh, Stobart Air uh, this week and some boardroom changes there, quite significant boardroom changes. And, and just uh, to sort of fill people in, Stobart Air, formerly known as Air Aaron, and it's the company that operates the airline that operates the Aer Lingus regional service. So if you're flying to regional UK, chances are you're taking a Stobart plane. Yeah, or, or Ireland or, or indeed some airports in France as well. As you say, there's been some uh, some tensions that, that have burst out in the boardroom over the last uh, couple of weeks. The background is that one of the main investors in Stobart, uh, the UK investment group Invesco, who owned 40%, signaled late last year they wanted to sell out. Uh, a process a process was set in place to, to see you know, what would happen to the shareholding in the company in future. The chief executive, Sean Brogan, put forward a plan for a management buyout. He's believed to have had financing for that. It had thought that that was you know, a, a good chance of success, and, and there had been speculation that, that the Stobart Group, which is a UK quota company, might sell out at the same time. It now transpires that Stobart, uh, whose chief executive is a man called Anglo, Andrew Tinkler, wants to stay in control and, in fact, wants to, wants to, wants to take control of the airline now and, and may have financing to do that. Uh, so, on the one hand, you have a, a, a chairman, Andrew Tinkler, has now been appointed chairman of, uh, of the Irish operating company following the departure of Tim Jeans just last week. Tim Jeans was a senior airline executive, previously worked for Ryanair, previously worked for Monarch. Uh, so he departed, uh, it appears, because of the row between uh, Tinkler and uh, Brogan over the future of the company. Tinkler's w- now been appointed chairman. Sure, and it would seem that these boardroom changes have raised some questions uh, with the IAA. The IAA has written to the company and asked them to clarify certain matters. Yeah, um, the IAA w- wants a, always wants in any airline that it deals with for a what it would see as an appropriate corporate structure to be in place. It would want to see appropriate expertise on the board of the airline and all the kind of proper governance and accountability procedures, a proper safety committee chaired by someone who knows you know, what they're about. Uh, and obviously these uh, management and boardroom changes uh, and attentions at uh, Stobart have, we understand, led to the IAA writing to Stobart and being in contact with Stobart mm. to say, look, we need we need you to clarify what's 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 going on. Um, Sean Brogan, the chief executive, issued a statement last night saying, you know, we've been in touch with the IAA, safety remains our top concern. I think the question now is who, who is going to take control? Uh, it appears unlikely that uh, Sean Brogan, the chief executive, it appears unlikely that MBO is going to succeed now if if the board chaired by... And there was talk of emergence, really, as well. There was, so... Uh, who was pushing that? It appears now that that you know that could well be back on the agenda. It seems to be being being pushed by the Stobart uh, Group, the UK group itself, and by Andrew, Andrew Tinkler. He has now installed himself as chairman uh, of the uh, of the group, uh, and I think that may that merger may well now be back on the agenda. Obviously, there 
are competition concerns that would have to be got over then and there's the issue of who would run the merged airline and how it would operate it could still be a few months down the road uh, before that would happen sure, yeah. Um, and another very interested party in all of this is Aer Lingus I was just because about to say that. Yeah. they obviously want uh, Stobart to continue feeding traffic uh, into its network and indeed IAG, Willie Walsh, uh, the parent company now of Aer Lingus. And they've helped to finance the planes for Stobart, have, if, I'm, they, they if I'm not mistaken. So do we have any sense of where they stand on this matter? Uh, we don't. And I think that's going to be interesting to see what emerges from, from, from that over the next few days uh, and, and weeks, possibly. Uh, Stobart has the uh, franchise to run the regional services up to 2022, so there is some leeway there. But nonetheless, uh, Aer Lingus is, is, is obviously going to be needed to be satisfied. Uh, there are no doubt uh, terms and conditions in the franchise agreement about ownership and about how the airline is operated. So Aer, Aer Lingus, we expect, is going to have to give the nod to whatever happens next. So I think the key question is, what is the Aer Lingus view of the ownership of, 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 of Stobart's Irish operation and in particular what is their view of a possible merger with CityJet which of course competes with them on the Dublin-London route if they were to give it the nod uh, then that might indeed be, uh, be, be a runner Okay, we'll see how that plays out uh, Joe Brennan, there were some trading updates today from the likes of CRH Kerry Glambia, Talkstrum yeah, I suppose um, the Irish companies are a few weeks after the, the US companies in terms of earnings season. Um, CRH kind of first out the traps. Um, it's a report a 9% increase in, in sales um, in, in the first quarter. Now, that may seem repressive at the best of times, but the first quarter is kind of a, a quite, is one of the quieter periods for, for, for CRH. Um, they're guiding towards a billion euros of EBITDA, that's an operating earnings, for the first half of this year. Um, analysts were, were surprised by that. I think analysts were expecting somewhere closer to 900 million, so we'll probably see a few upgrades from a few analysts over the next few weeks. Uh, the stock itself has, has risen about 1.9%. On the acquisitions front, it spent um, 6.5 billion um, buying assets from uh, Lafarge Halsam last year as part of their merger. Um, the, the CEO on a, on a call with analysts this morning was playing down the, the prospect of uh, further big acquisitions, though he did highlight that um, they may take a look at the US and the Belgian assets of um, Heidelberg Cement, which also is divesting assets as part of a merger with an Italian company. Uh, Glambia, um, not as good as showing there. Uh, shares have fallen about 1.3%. Um, is in the back of a 0.8% sale in uh, sales in the first quarter. And actually, if you strip out the benefits of uh, euro-dollar uh, conversions, the sales are actually down uh, 2.9%. Um, the better performing business was the global performance business. That's uh, the part of the business that actually sells protein shakes and, and, and protein bars to fitness fans. Uh, they, they had sales up almost 6%. But you see depression here on the uh, global ingredients and the, the dairy business, uh, both being hit by uh, declines in dairy pricing. Um, even though they uh, reiterated their earnings guidance for uh, 8-10% to 10%, uh, EPS growth for this year, analysts are already at the top end of that, um, so they may come down a bit uh, over the next few weeks. Kerry stock t- uh, down 2.2%. Uh, they reaffirmed their guidance um, after reporting a 2.9% growth in, in business volumes in the first quarter, um, but they, and they said that yeah, the guidance are looking for 6-10% to 10% EPS growth for the year, um, but they did warn that the overall market conditions remain challenging and that the Irish and UK consumer goods markets remain highly competitive. Right. Arthur Beasley, we had uh, Apple reporting a fall in iPhone sales and Twitter shares down 10% after results uh, disappointed 
the market. I'm not going to ask you to comment specifically on those results, but uh, just sort of in a wider uh, sense, what does this potentially mean for the Irish economy? Because both those companies have a lot of jobs here uh, and it probably tells us something about growth in the global economy as well. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, look, at I, Apple is the, the biggest company in the world. Uh, there are only so many people in the world to go around and there are only so many people who are going to be able to buy uh, iPhones. And it would appear that Apple has sold every single one of those, at least one iPhone. So eventually they're going to run out of road. Uh, Twitter uh, has been under some pressure for you know quite a long period. And I think there was a, quite some expectation that uh, the the news uh, was not going to be great. And so mm. it turned out to for be... Twitter, it's question yeah. where did it go from here how do yes, they it is. continue to monetize uh, and, and, all and the, of the basic offering is the service. basic offering is still the same if you were on twitter 5 years ago uh, it's pretty much the same thing and the question is you know what next for the company you're right the two companies have a big presence in Ireland. Uh, there's this big, huge investigation still underway almost for almost two years as regards Apple's tax arrangements in Ireland. Uh, Twitter, it remains to be seen what is next. But it does show you that uh, companies located here, even in Europe's fastest growing economy, are exposed to the winds of change out there in the external world. Yeah, um, Cliff. Yeah, I was just going to say, particularly when you consider Intel's recent announcement as well uh, that it's going to it's going to cut uh, twelve thousand jobs worldwide. We're not clear what the implications of that are for Ireland, but it's twelve and a half percent of its workforce. So, if it, if that were to be extrapolated in, into an Irish context where they have four and a half thousand people, I mean that would be a big chunk of would, job losses. It'd be a big chunk of job losses, and hopefully Ireland might escape the you know the worst of it. But again, that's based on uh, on slowing sales in in many developed markets and sl- and changing technology trends uh, the same things that Apple that you know that Apple is trying to uh, is trying to battle in its own market yeah Arthur and one of the arguments is or at least one of the great concerns around the outlook or the trajectory for the Irish economy particularly this year has centered on uh, all of this financial market turbulence that that we've seen since January now that some of that has gone away uh, markets are markets have calmed but uh, I think this shows us that uh, you know underneath uh, volatility in financial markets and traders play on volatility that you do have the performance of individual companies in individual markets and we are uh, to a great extent dependent on their success in this country given okay. our very large FDI exposure. Sure. Now Arthur, you were at the launch of the Central Bank's uh, annual report today and uh, they've handed over a dividend payment of uh, just shy of 1.8 billion euro to the government made a profit in excess of uh, 2 billion euro. Sounds like it was a great year for the Central Bank. Uh, happy days for the Central Bank and uh, uh, even happier days for the Exchequer but I mean uh, you know, this is not a, a profit in the conventional sense. Uh, a lot of this is money which originally went out of the exchequer, went to the central bank in the form of interest payments on the portfolio of sovereign bonds it holds in the wake of the deal in 2013 to scrap the Anglo-Irish Bank promissory notes. Uh, The bank has been selling off those bonds uh, at a much faster rate than agreed back then with the ECB and as well as taking the benefit of the interest payments it's also taking the benefit of capital gains on those bonds and those capital gains essentially arise from the value that those bonds realise in the open market now Mm. and the value at which they were issued. Long story short 
the uh, central bank is in the money and the exchequer benefits to the tune of 80%, which goes back into the exchequer of, of all central bank surpluses. Now, but I suppose the, the, the basic uh, idea that must be borne in mind is that, that it's not a pure profit from the state's perspective. A lot of this is recycled money. Right, okay. And did the new governor, Philip Lane, did he give any indication as to where they might be going in terms of their review of the macro prudential rules? Um, essentially, the message from uh, Professor Lane is essentially the same. Uh, in January, he said there will be a review. The review is ongoing. Uh, the results will be out in November. He said there are three possibilities. Uh, one is that the rules are tightened, one is that they are loosened, or one or another that they are kept the same. But he says that this will be evidence-based, and he makes the case again and again. This is a reiteration of the line coming from everyone in Dame Street that uh, the rules are here to stay and that the, you know, everyone else who's affected by them is going to have to deal with that, is going to have to, uh, is going to, have to bear that in mind because the message very much is one in which they're saying there's no question of the rules being taken away. Right, now finally, um, we are still without a government. Uh, we're two months on from the general election, still no government. Earlier in the show, uh, I spoke to Irish MEP uh, Brian Hayes, who's Director of Elections uh, with Fianna Gael. He said it would be a disaster if we had a second election this year. Um, uh, he also felt it would be a mistake if water charges were abolished. So I don't know how you square the circle in terms of that, because clearly Fianna Fáil uh, want that as part of any uh, support for a minority Fianna Gael government. Cliff Taylor, how do you see this playing out? And it's very interesting that in Spain they've decided to have a second poll after four months of stalemate in trying to form a government. Well, I guess the soundings today have been more likely that there will be a deal than, than, than there won't, but it's swung back and forward a lot over the last uh, few days, so, so you know, goodness knows where it'll be in 24 hours' time. I think Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have looked over the precipice at another election and realised the uh, the public unpopularity that you know that they're going to pull that they're, 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 this will lead them into, uh, particularly having taken so long, first of all, to, to, to even talk to each other in the first place, and then uh, appear to go on and on, uh, focusing on the one issue of water charges. And you know, while the TDs, a few TDs have been quoted as saying in the last couple of days, people all over the country are talking about water charges. I'm not sure that they are. I think people are talking about the crime That's wave. Week. Yeah, people are talking about the crime wave. People are talking about uh, queues in hospitals and the wait that public uh, patients have to, you know, come, uh, have to have to wait for, for 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 key tests. They're talking about the housing crisis. I think those are the things that people are talking about. And I think the problem for the main parties is, that, you know, if they're not seen to be dealing with these things and seem to be obsessed with water. Um, and indeed, it was announced yesterday that the no- national broadband plan has effectively been paused while we await a new government. Yeah, and uh, the problem with the national broadband, of course, like like all major infrastructure projects, it, it takes time to build. So it now looks like this project isn't going to be complete, maybe 2021, maybe 2022. It had been promised for 2020. And who knows what other delays might lie ahead. Um, so another, another key infrastructure project delayed, uh, and, you know, and, and, and another thing held up, you know, which is important for business and, mm-hmm. and rural development, particularly, uh, yeah. you know, particularly in areas that, uh, that are really struggling at the moment. Arthur, how damaging is this for the economy, do you think? Well, uh, I think, you know, meanwhile, there are pressures out there in the outside world. There's a Brexit referendum looming in only eight weeks' time. Uh, I mean, the the priority for the country at the moment is is not 
the divisions over the water charge. Uh, you'd have to think that the main challenges, I mean, if you were uh, living in a hotel room uh, with nowhere to go other than that hotel room with all of the pressures that brings, and many, many families are in that position, uh, that would have to be uh, a priority. If you're waiting for a cancer test in a public hospital, uh, these things are far more deep and far graver uh, challenges to uh, this state and to the politicians elected to carry out the job of running the state than the challenge, in inverted commas, presented by the, the water charge and really, you know, the notion that the whole thing goes away to a commission which is going to, at some point, come back with a report uh, whose findings, I don't think it will be any mystery, whose findings will probably say that, you know, it's better to have a single utility running uh, your decrepit water infrastructure while there's one person in charge to get the thing running. That seems to me to be pretty much a sideshow. And that's very much the message that we got last night from the Department of Finance in this famous stability programme update document, which essentially is a, uh, a half-year report to the European Commission in Brussels six months after the introduction of the budget, essentially says where we are now at the outset of the budget process. And that document is very clear in its assessment that conditions in the outside world are uh, more dangerous and more volatile right now than at any time since the height of the financial crisis. And there's also the whole Brexit question looming. And meanwhile, we've had more than 60 days of political drift, talks about doll reform, endless talks about water. And, you know, really, I think they'd want to get the move on and mm. do a deal. So what's your sense? Uh, minority government or second election? A very short-lived minority government. OK, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. That's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Brian Hayes, Arthur Beasley, Cliff Taylor and Joe Brennan. John Casey produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.